Hey everyone, we're Jordan and Antoinette. Welcome to the first ever Happen Films podcast. So you know us as filmmakers, but these are extraordinary times. Uh, we're in lockdown in New Zealand during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that's meant that we have to, we've had to cancel all of our film shoots for the foreseeable. But we still really want to contribute to the discussion around the opportunities for change that this pandemic has presented. So we decided to start a podcast. And we hope that wherever you are and whatever your situation, you'll find some hope and inspiration in the conversations that we have with different people from around the world over the next few months. Today we're speaking to Megan Patrick, who some of you might remember from our film Creatures of Place that we made a couple of years ago. They live on Jarrah People's Country in Dalesford, in Australia's southern state of Victoria, with their youngest son Woody and their little dog Zero. On their quarter acre section and in their small town community, their focus is on creating resilience in a way that is creative, connecting, resourceful and energetic. Yeah, we feel energised every time we hear them speak and they've been a huge influence and inspiration for us in our own life choices. These guys are next level practitioners in the art of living aligned with nature and community and their worldview has so much to offer us. We're super excited to be chatting with them today and we hope you all enjoy the episode. Okay, Meg, Patrick, thanks so much for being our first guests on our podcast. We're so excited to chat with you today. Uh, us too. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so tell us how you're feeling and how your family's responding to the pandemic. Um, <laughs> well, how, how long are we in now from being at home? Maybe a week and a half? No, it's over two weeks. It's over two weeks. Yeah. There's your answer. (laughs) Um, Two weeks yesterday, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Maybe I'll start first. Mm. I feel like every um, day from the beginning brought up new emotions and there was sort of the first day I, I was very excited, just the prospect of everybody staying home and just what that might look like. Um, just for the development of the home economy and people not flying and people not travelling as much um, in terms of relocalisation, the the wealth and the, the breadth of that. Um, then the next day was panic and fear and what, a pand- what living in a pandemic um, means for the broader communities of the world um, and, you know, people getting sick and loved ones and... Yeah, and I feel like every day has brought up lots of different emotions like that. Um, the one that I'm, so now it's two weeks in, what I'm currently dealing with is um, feeling really uh, happy that we get to live like we live. Um, very, very home-based, um, enough food to feed ourselves. We can go outside. Um, we can, you know, go for a walk in the bush. We can go for bike rides. Um, but really um, great concern for family and friends and for people further afield who are very isolated, who can't afford soap, for example, to wash their hands, who have to go to work and who are um, come home to living with lots of people, to homeless people who don't have a roof over their head, who can't um, physically isolate themselves, um, and also how do we, we're so privileged here to live like this, how do we share that? How do we, in a time where everybody is is physically distanced, how do we, how do we, what does generosity look like in a time like this? Is it just sharing videos online of our skills 
um, obviously being kind to ourselves and each other when we're feeling under stress. Um, you know, we've lots of things in the letterbox, lots of seeds going out, sourdough starter, um, seedlings. Um, we just had a friend drop off a big bag of gherkins. Just what does it, you know, what does it look like? But then we can't touch it for a few days. We have to wash it. Just how do we, what does generosity look like? Is it just a phone call, just to check in on people? Um, yeah, that's probably enough for me for now. Mm. Um, yeah, so I guess I um, <clears throat> have felt for a number of months quite burnt out um, in all the different particularly all the different community uh, projects I'm involved with. So um, this, when we, yeah, 15 days ago, um, when we started uh, the physical isolation, uh, physical distancing, um, there was this great sense of relief for me. Like, and I, I wondered why I hadn't had, like I'm pretty uh, disciplined um, when I set my mind on something, but why I hadn't um, created the space before it was forced upon me, us, everybody. Uh, so the first, yeah, so this 15 days, apart from this overwhelming need to share our skills and to make new videos and to get up very pragmatic and practical things as well as um, inspiring things. Um, I've, apart from that sort of being in service to, um, I've just been so thankful for the rest. And it made, it's made me think that regardless how we get our own what sort of shape we get our own personal lives in or our community lives or household lives, unless, um, unless the entire world stops as it is grinding to a halt, we don't really get a sense of the stillness and the quietness and the, you know, the, the very, the, the potential to, maybe once again listen to the songs of the stars that industrial society, particularly in the last hundred years, has really diminished radically. And those songs our ancestors knew. And I'm starting to be alive and awake to the possibility of such a, of quietitude and restoration, um, amongst the fear, the anxiety, the need to reach out to vulnerable people to, in our f f community and our friends and families. Um, um, so yeah, there's, there's such mixed emotions there. Um, every time I go on social media, which is not very often, um, or check in with um, the latest updates I get, uh, I, I feel panicked and um, I feel, wow, this is, I'm really glad we made that decision 15 days ago. I wish our governments had. Um, we were reading and looking at the countries such as Taiwan and Hong Kong and now Singapore who really um, acted very quickly and that was so obvious the way to go. But we're still in our tourist town. We still have tourists coming up here. <laughs> 
and um, you know it's it's an egalitarian society which you know has obviously many many benefits we know the benefits of that but at a time like this even skeptics um, and critics of the government um, like us particularly on sustainability and social issues we have to just um, adhere to uh, the advice, but even challenge um, the advice uh, as well, and and say this is all happening too slow. People aren't taking this seriously enough. Um, and I, I know in New Zealand, you guys are at stage four, I think, in lockdown. Is that right? Yeah, we're yeah. How's that going four. for you? Yeah, it's for us personally. Um, yeah, mixed emotions as well. Like mm. it is quite a scary time um, not knowing what's ahead but we're also quite fortunate in that it's not much of a change for us because we're able to work from home we spend a lot of time at home anyway we're al almost always isolated <laughs> just the two of us <laughs> so it's really normal <laughs> yeah so on a personal level not a whole lot has changed except how we source some of our food um, and things like that kind of the logistics of Mm. everyday life has changed slightly mm. um but yeah it's quite an interesting space to be in and i imagine for you guys in particular being so community oriented orientated and um engaged having so many relationships with your local community to meet your needs and wanting to be there for them in a time of crisis to not be able to be physically there with them must be an interesting challenge to navigate. Yeah, and we've we've all and Meg, you might want to speak more to this, but just we've always said that self sufficiency is a is a well, it's a problem of language. I mean, people who use that term, I think, are actually meaning community sufficiency. But let's be really specific about the language. Um, resilience is community sufficiency. It's not self sufficiency. So while while we have a huge um, yeah, a huge amount. We have 12 years of preparing for collapse um, in on this particular lot in central Victoria and within the community gardens and the community forests that we're involved in. Um, and there's there's food everywhere. There's we have wild um, hidden wild um, uh, colonies of bees that we've cut little access doors into, um, and we we're natural beekeepers to both bees here at home but also in in those hidden areas in the forest um, so feral foods and um, the huge amount of learning over the last 12 years we've put into edible flora and fauna and fungi um, that it's so good to have that that's our main bank apart from our seed bank our cellar and our, and our garden and our community but to be shut off um, so radically from community at the moment um, is is definitely um a, i feel a sense of vulnerability with that mm. me too and yeah i mean i guess i was yeah talking before about how do we how do we practice community sufficiency what does that look like when it's just us here us just us here mm. and um yeah how do we how do we look after each other in a non-digital way in a very very real practical sense hmm. and yeah i don't i don't know the answer to that question yet well i think we're doing it 
um, with at the moment. Yes, yeah. But I mean, just in the example, like I don't think, yeah, we're infants in this yeah. new world. Yeah. Um, but I mean, just for example, Meg mentioned the the gherkins um, being dropped o over by a friend who's a market gardener, and um, I think you, um, asking Edward whether uh, you know is there. We haven't really had to save gherkin seeds before. We've always just got seedlings from him. So, like, while we know how to um, save most seeds, it's like, well, let's ask the question, is there anything specific in saving gherkin seeds? Because at the moment, it's all about seed saving for us. It's, yeah. of course, putting food in the cellar, of course, a whole lot of other things, uh, foraging and hunting and gleaning food. But um, so, but another thing that's been... Um, dropped off in our little letterbox is a wild shot ra rabbits by a friend of ours and we're exchanging seeds to he his family so he's uh, got a gun license he's lost his job at the bottle shop he's got a baby on the way and he's a dear friend and um, so he's basically supplying um, wild shot rabbits which he can do in a solo um, scenario by himself um, we uh, take care with gloves to handle the bags he puts them into and basically all the, the preparation they go into the oven and then we're just like really clear about it but so clear about the hygiene of that so um and then we're supplying him in seeds and he's just starting his learning in terms of um vegetables because you can't just live on wild rabbit although you probably can for a while <laughs> we may have to find out <laughs> Compared to how we used to practice community sufficiency, I'm finding uh, exactly we're infants, but I'm finding the way that we're doing it at the moment isn't satisfying my need to give or receive. It's just, and I don't know whether that's because um, it's all done from afar, whether it's digitally sharing knowledge, you know, our inboxes are chockers with emails of what's your recipe for acorn meal? How do, what's your sourdough recipe? Can I please have some sourdough starter? You know, all of these sort of practical things and we can share it, but it's not, yeah, I'm finding it really frustrating um, because we're so used to having volunteers here and running free monthly workshops in various things. And yes, it was giving a lot of energy out and yes it was exhausting um but it was very satisfying and got, very nurturing we got to have a lot of hugs yeah yeah <laughs> which and are really see, missing now yeah, yeah and to see we're huggy people <laughs> and to see yeah people's um it, the learning happening up close face to face that aha moment, oh, that's all it is to make yogurt, or oh, really, that's all it is, a few ingredients to make beer. And, of course, we can do it this way, but I haven't found that it's enough. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we, um, in our very little rural community, uh, a wonderful group of women have set up a, um, well, they've, they've had this going for a long time, and so they're just expanding on it, um, and they've asked for volunteers to help cook meals for people who are going to struggle. And so I volunteered to cook meals and and then I got really exhausted washing all our vegetable, vegetables anyway that are coming in a, in a veggie box because we don't grow quite enough. And um, we're really lucky to have this veggie box delivery, which is fantastic, but it's just exhausting by the time you've washed every single vegetable in the box and it feels so ridiculous. Um, 
And I, so I was thinking, gosh, how's that going to be? Um, and then I got a call from them today saying, actually, we're just rethinking it. We, we're, re- we're really needing to think how we do this um, because actually it's a lot... Uh, well, for the same reason, I guess they're they're rethinking it, and I and I was really disappointed because it's exactly what you were saying, Meg. It's like, how do you be generous <laughs> in this in this unprecedented um, time of of that being of those hugs and those and that giving being the one thing that's actually really hard to do. So it, it is. It's like it's the unanswered question at the moment, and I mean, so many people are really um, using Facebook and social media, other social media, to to get through this but like you Patrick I have to stay off it for days at a time I can scroll through my Facebook feed um, once a day and I'll do it really quickly and it'll just be kind of like has anybody left a comment or has anybody put up an article that's really going to help me um, for the most part I can't read any of it um, and that and staying off has just helped my anxiety so much like it, I'm just so much better off, mm. off that yeah we're just like more anxiety beget begets more anxiety mm. just just as more more love begets more love but so and social media is a place of high anxiety high drama and almost i think um tyson Yunker porter in his book sam talk talks about how we're this culture this global culture of adolescence regardless of how old we are i think it probably starts with the baby boomers and goes right the way through to all of us but we don't have any rites of passage or initiation processes. So we basically stay eternal, um, eternal adolescence. And so social media is the sort of the forum for the drama of a culture of adolescence. And while it's incredibly useful um, and incredibly uh, useful, particularly in uh, getting people to blockades and getting information out there that's important or uh, marginal or, you know, uh, marginal medias being able to um, to be heard amongst the state journalism or the, you know, the conspiracy theories. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, that just, you know, and I, I, I put myself in that too. I think, um, I think the first stage is recognising that we're a culture of adolescence. Um, and that we have a lot of growing up to do. And this is an opportunity for us to really um, to grow up. And the way, while it might be difficult to link um, the way in which we're living in a global economy to, say, um, the, with the origins of this pandemic, I mean, of course, it is very easy to link. Some people won't see the links. Um, but... One of the things I think that for us is, has been so, I guess, surprising is that while we've been involved in projects to prepare for pandemics as a part of climate change or, or um, ecological crises, um, it's, we've been warned about pandemics for a, at least a decade now that this is coming. Um, we've been, in Australia, we've been preparing for bushfires. That's been bushfire mitigation. Um, that's taken a huge amount of work, both in the community and neighbourhood se- sector or sector. How can you have a neighbourhood sector? Um, in the neighbourhood sphere, sphere um, uh, working with neighbours, doing um, reforestation of um, shade producing plants, um, like uh, indigenous biota that is fire mitigating rather than fire retarding. 
um, water conserving. So water and fire, uh, floods and fire or drought and fire, um, you know, are the things we've been really concentrating on and really our resilience to those things have really upped, stepped up over the years. But this pandemic is just sort of left field. It's mm. like mm. there we have done personally, I don't think well, personally and societally, we've done probably the least amount of preparation uh, or thinking, let alone acting in this sphere. So, so in in everyday life for you, pandemic aside, from from looking into how you both are living, it looks like you know you're you're cultivating resilience, and you have been for the last twelve years. What what is that like? What does that look like practically? But also. Do you, in doing so, do you have in the back of your mind, okay, we're, we're preparing for something in the future. We're, we're creating a sense of safety for our family, for our community, as you are building your firewood stores and things like that. Hmm. I, I struggle with the word safety, but Mog, you, why don't you okay, sure. answer that? Sure. Um, I feel like up until now, we've been preparing for each season ahead and we've been filling our firewood stores, we've been filling our cellar, we've been filling our seed bank, etc. for, yeah, for the winter time, for the autumn time, just for the, just for the foreseeable future. And that, I feel like that has completely changed now. And now I'm thinking, what else can I pickle? What else can I preserve? It's like I read something about mulberry leaves and we've got a vine that I'm looking at outside our window here of grapevine and I could be preserving all of those leaves before they fall off. Um, So I'm thinking a lot more about what can we preserve because we don't know how long this is going to go on for. Um, And, of course, for the last 12 years, yes, we've been um, preserving and storing Um, for the next season ahead but it's also we've been learning skills we've been unlearning and learning new skills for the future for this very moment Mm. although of course we didn't know that Mm. so that feels like a really exciting thing as it does to look in our seed bank to look in our garden Mm. and see how well prepared we are for this and of course this is only two weeks in and we'll see what it looks like in a year's time if we're still here. Mm. Um, but we have knowledges. Mm. Um, and also it feels different this time around because it's autumn here, it's our harvest season, and we're not just bottling for the next season, it, we're bottling for our lives. <laughs> it's every pear we pick, every grape, every dandelion root, um, every rose hip feels like the difference between life and death. Mm. And that is, I have a new reverence for life, for Patrick as our main gardener, for the seasons, for it rained yesterday. Just thank you for this. Mm. Everything Mm. I'm just holding a lot more sacred and a lot more dear than I have maybe in the past. It it has felt like a 12-year dress rehearsal, I have to say. (laughs) But, I mean, just to add to that, though, um, Meg read out a comment on the Retro Suburbia um, Facebook page to me about a, a perma- 
Permian um, permaculturalist in Tassie who had all her poultry taken and her all her food, veggies, well, a lot of her veggies stolen. And um, so it's like, wow, we're already at that stage mm-hmm. and um, supermarkets are still open. Um, so, and she, she talked about being the only permie on the street and just, you, this is, gets back to this thing about resilience. You, we can only do so much in our own households. Self-sufficiency is very vulnerable unless there's a whole core and because I think working in the community, uh, w- with the community gardens, community managed forests, with the MEGS, the, all the different uh, HEPA and relocalization um, uh, workshops, free workshops MEG has been running and working with Sue Dennett um, in, with HRN. And just, yeah, all the, the bush school stuff that I've been doing with the kids, just all of this stuff has built a social um, bond and a social indebtedness to one another that um it it's not it doesn't give us a surety it doesn't give us safety but it it certainly puts us in a much better place there is um it's like giving begets giving and generosity begets more more generosity and so while the tendency is to get a gun and defend um the ranks the best thing to do is just to you know, develop skills and knowledges like with those with that foraging and hunting knowledges that like while our garden and while our cellar and our wood stores and all these things of settled permaculture life are important, they may be just taken away overnight. And in fact, we may find, find ourselves on the road. And so, so I guess we've been pioneers of permaculture travel for this reason as well, mm-hmm. recognizing that we may be environmental refugees um at some stage and so are building a hardiness and a resilience to having to be on the move to know that a thistle like every single thistle root in australia of which there are tens of thousands particularly growing beautifully in the winter time is edible not only edible but delicious um you just got to get past the prickles and down into the soil um and and not just delicious but very nutrient dense incredibly nutrient (laughs) because that's yeah, they're tap roots and they bring up all the minerals to the surface. Yeah. And these sort of ancestral medicine foods of our uh, Aboriginal heritages um, from Europe and Western Asia and North Africa, this sort of range, uh, climate range, which many of the weed species in Australia and probably in New Zealand as well, um, things like dandelion and burdock root and mallow and chickweed and all these things they're high nutrient density um they're incredibly uh good in terms of immune, our immune systems and other things that we're doing to 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 uh for general i mean self-care is obviously in order to have broad self-interest in order to be able to give we need to actually give to ourselves first so being good in ourselves mentally and physically, um, being healthy in our, in, our, in our own self means that we then have something to give to someone else. Um, so that regardless of our abilities, regardless of our state of health, the more things, the more health, the more healthy we are in our own states, um, in our own personal sphere, in our own personal capabilities, uh, the more we're going to have to give to others and to be then in that generosity, in 
of exchange. It, there, there would, there is an, a tendency to do the kind of right, the right wing militarist thing of head to the heels and get the cans in the ground and um, and then you know bunker down with a whole lot of ammo. That's I think very vulnerable. Um, what what I think we need to do is to prepare to have all our vegetables shocked. Uh, <laughs> shocked. Well, that hopefully will be shocked if they're not eaten by us. Um, yeah, uh, to to be stolen. And um, okay, what do we do next? Um, it's to prepare for this is important. And I I, I don't. Um, but I, I think the the woman in Tasmania who had her poultry and veggies stolen. That is still important. Not it's terrible for her, but important for us to say, okay, we're we're at that stage already. We're at that stage. Um, we have to mentally prepare for what if, and not um, be fearful, and and not exactly. come at it with with fear. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And hopefully we can, uh, you know, intercept that person taking that stuff and say, hey, don't steal from us. Learn from us. You know, if you take out the permies of the world, the world is going to be very vulnerable. It seems like, you know, you can see on TV there's like prepper shows, there's doomsday preppers, people, yeah, hoarding their cans and getting their guns and building bunkers somewhere. I mean, it happens in New Zealand as well, multi-billionaires buying up their mm-hmm. uh, property in the South Island here um, as kind of like a their last defence um, when the world goes to shit, but good luck. That's, that seems yeah. so unresilient. I mean, and, and it seems like you guys are the opposite of preppers, yet you're still preparing for this. And I assume you would be living this lifestyle even if there wasn't some future threat of uh, pandemic or climate disruption or um, something you need to prepare for. Does it just feel like the right way to live for you guys? Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a big a big part of why we decided to live like this was because we wanted to decouple ourselves from the centralised systems. Hmm. So now those centralised systems are looking very shaky um, and the dispersed system is looking less shaky. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, can I just go mm. back a little bit, just for what we were talking about, um, just about having permies, yeah, if you take out the permies and what that looks like. So um, in the bushfire season a couple of months ago, there was a, a natural beekeeper from New South Wales who had um, a bunch of hives, 60 or so hives, and he had the Langstroth and the Waray hives and the um, Kenyan top bar hives, and bushfire came through and the only ones that were still standing were the Kenyan top bar hives because they're on stilts and they're raised off the ground and so the grass fire, the fire passed underneath leaving the the, um, the frames and the bees intact. So just think about just what that knowledge, that one little piece of knowledge does from a permi dispersed out and I think about mm. what permies all over the world in these pandemic scenarios or bushfires or droughts or floods, just what that what that resilience learning and sharing uh, does to building, help build, um, you know, food sovereignty and community sufficiency. Mm. And that, yeah, that's very exciting. We, 
we said we re- we released or published a um, a video essay this morning on our blog um, called "Replacing Growth with Belonging Economies," and in that we wrote it last year. I think November we finished it, um, and it's going to be published as a chapter in in a book in the UK, possibly. <laughs> everything's everything's quite questionable now, um, but one of the things that we say in that and we've said in many talks over the years now's the time to transition while there's affluence while Mm -hmm. there's relative affluence and look there is still relative affluence if this goes on for 18 months which is what uh, or you know longer even six months um the affluence will not be there um even though the stimulus packages even though the rental agreements and the mortgage freezes and all the all the different things that governments are doing to um, enable uh, people to survive, um, it will still um, radically upset um, business as usual, or it already has. So, um, but just that that point of while we're still calm, while we're still. While we, while we still have the ability to think and we're not on the move, um, this is the time to think. This is the time to think through all the different um, ways of, of, of living. And up until now, it's been a great choice of uh, whether to be this sort of person or that, to follow music, to study optometry, to... I mean, the whole use of the word lifestyle. Exactly. That it's a choice that we get to flick through a magazine. It's like, oh, yeah, I want to live like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have a pet hate of that word. Mm. Um, So, yeah, this is is such an opportunity for people to um, really, well, either intensify their transition if they've already started but also, if they haven't, what an opportunity it is to uh, take the time, as many of us have at the moment, um, to really th- think through how we're going to live. Even if we come out of this in 18 months' time and, gov- uh, and stock markets start building and growing again, do we want to con- keep contributing to a system that is really just going to bring more very loud and screaming feedback into our ears. And this is, this is feedback. Um, I think, you know, the, the fact that coronavirus has been spread by cruise ships and, and plane travel, you know, these, these are like highly carbon intensive luxury tourism that's highly unnecessary in an era of critical species decline, of social um, unjustness of climate chaos. This, these, these things, you know, that are advertised in even newspapers like The Age that have been running um, stories about climate and species decline for years and decades. And then every weekend they have this 50-page spread of your next luxury cruise. It's it, this, and, and this is the way that our kids have been schooled. So they get to about age 11, 12, and then become aware of all the world's problems. And then they're schooled to participate in those problems. Some might end up 
challenging those the, the problems or challenging the systems. But mostly, um, it, the, 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 our industrial schooling system is like a schizophrenia, um, revealing to the kids what's prob happening, and while while at the same time asking them to participate in that system of destruction. It's a it's a crazy crazy society but the the tipping point of all collapsing societies have have been have the 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 reason for the collapse of um of complex societies is getting further and further and further and further away from that which makes life possible which is the soil which is the sun which is rain which is love which is interspecies generosity, which is a general state of mutualism. And we've been living this competitive state of economy and culture making. And completely disconnected. Completely disconnected from those fundamentals of life. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, we have, our schooling system has no, there are no um, opportunities for children to deeply honour that that makes life possible. We don't have a culture like that. We don't have a culture that actually says the sun <laughs> needs worshipping or at least attending to or at least co being conscious of. If, if we were any closer to the sun, we'd melt. If we were any further away, we'd freeze. This is just this moment of just deliciousness, this delicious relationship with the sun. Like, that's, that's why we're here. Mm -hmm. it's, we're not here because of some latest technological advancement of humans. It's like we're here because of these fundamentals. Earth, sun, rain, soil, microbes, fungi, trees. Viruses. And viruses. <laughs> <laughs> and we may not be here because of those as well. Yeah. So what an opportunity it is to really step back and have a look at how we live and who we are. And we have really found that with a lot of people, if there isn't the panic, if there isn't the over-dominating fears um, of what it means to be living in this time of pandemic, there has been a great relief as patrick was saying before mm. but a great prioritizing mm. of we've got friends who are finally doing what they really want to be doing mm. without any distractions without any deadlines or have tos or or in, indulgences yeah. <laughs> yeah. i mean that's the we're fed so much um we're advertised to where we're, we're you know predated. everyone we're predated <laughs> by mass consumer society all the time you have to be so disciplined mm -hmm. not to be led into that um, matrix so when it's not there what what an opportunity yeah. and and one of the things that we keep getting apart from the fear and anxieties is this is some of the most peaceful time I've had yeah. in the last two weeks or the last week yeah. when people have just, this is some I feel if I don't tune in too much to the news, obviously I'm, we all need to be aware of what's happening. Um, but if I if I'm in the present, if I if I'm working in in 
in the garden if I'm transferring excess vegetables and turning it into soup stock or, um, you know, these sorts of things fulfill us. They, they, these practical um, community and, and personal preparations for um, uncertainty. But I, I think I'd like to get back to um, safety. There's been a huge emphasis in governments in Australia in particular, but all around the rich countries about safety, personal safety. Um, you know, while these things have come from a good place where builders used to fall off ladders and families would become destitute and people would die or get poor levels of health, particularly workers, um, I totally think that, that that history and that intent is important. It's got to such a, an extent, though, that most of us have no skills. Children are um, raised with much fear um, parents don't want them to do anything or to learn anything because they might hurt themselves. Um, this sort of culture, uh, what we call a kind of paternal, well, not we, many people call a kind of paternalistic or nanny state culture, um, has not done us any favours in terms of um, preparing. The, the safety, the whole emphasis on safety, safe, um, I think safer together is the group, the government group that auspices our community bushfire um, mitigation group. Um, it's sort of, um, there, there's an insidious side to it. Um, rather than safety, um, we need to recultivate old common sense, uh, as David Holmgren says, that's no longer common. Um, we need to take small calculated risks we need to encourage our kids to take small calculated risks because it's in risk and it's also in failure and it is also in small accidents not big accidents that we learn we get the feedback that we've been missing so it's not just the lack of feedback to that which makes life possible but it's the lack of feedback of using tools or um, doing uh, processes um, playing with fire playing with fire exactly mm -hmm. But just what that <clears throat> looks like now, what is inside? It's mm -hmm. even, yeah, what does is, what is childhood look like? What does play look like? What is, yeah, learning, risk-taking, all those things that are part of growing up. Yeah, I mean, Woody said to me, our seven-year-old said to me a few days ago, because he's got a wobbly tooth, and he said, <clears throat> if the tooth fairy comes and leaves a dollar coin, will he have to wash that coin? <laughs> And That's I said, so cute. yes, yeah, it's cute, but this is childhood in a pandemic. And I said, yes, you, you will have to wash that coin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's only apparently coronavirus is, has, has moved into the fairy realm. <laughs> <laughs> Situations are dire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like with, with the, with the, opportunity that this pandemic presents it can kind of go either way of continuing on business as usual increased safety increased control or it could go on another path of i guess the world that a lot of us are hoping to create and build and that uh it is being built um how 
how do people, I guess, how, how can we play a role in helping it tip in the right direction, do you think? And is there a place for us to, to help nudge, I guess, the, our narrative and our societies towards a better way of living and away from continued business as usual mm. and and more extreme measures of control and of uh, cleanliness and safety and everything else that could come out of this. Mm. Story. Mm. Just what we're doing now. Yeah, sharing stories and you... Like while um, our deeds have to accompany our words and there's been a lot of words around sustainability and post-growth and degrowth um, economies and um, we actually need to live it. But story is central. We, if we can't be inspired by other people's stories and other people's possibilities. And if we can't take the seeds of those stories and then make them into our own regionally adaptive and resilient stories, um, then we've lost our humanity. And I think this is an opportunity to move from a passive consumptive culture to a creative production creative productive culture and imaginative because we have to what does it look like and it's going to look different for all of us but what does what does a positive beautiful world look like for you to live in it's going to look Mm. maybe similar maybe different to what it looks like for us and just going back to the industrial schooling conversation are those are the kids asked? Are there questions about what, how to give back to the world? How to about generosity and to be in the flow of generosity? So I think we need to all imagine what it looks like, and yeah, Ima- yeah, and Im- imagination um, is like a critical missing point of our stories of our ability to even conceive that we can write our own stories mm. that and then we can share our own stories yeah. that we're not where we think of story as hollywood or some published book or something that's professional the, the, what we need now is a diverse complex of multi um yeah, a multi- multiplicity of, of stories, of little intimate stories between one another and across um, vectors and into other homes and to ignite the possibility. Because if we don't have imagination, we don't have story, we can't act. We will just, we will, we will continue to do what, governments and business want us to do and so cultivating in our children their imaginations not by watching someone else's story not by watching and passively consuming I mean of course films and of course books and you know 
other people's stories are important, but if that's all they have, there's no imagination. Imagination must come first, and other people's stories are a beautiful supplement to that. And also what you were saying in the beginning, Patrick, about just having time to be quiet and to listen. And I had this moment the other day, Woody and I went for a bike ride, and he said, oh, there's a patch of grass with some nice sunlight on it. Let's stop there and have a rumble. So we went and had a rumble on that grass, and we were just sitting there afterwards. And I was just looking at this beautiful blackwood tree amongst um, a wild apple and some gums and some willows, just looking at all the sort of the different shapes and the different sizes and which ones were taller, and just looking at this blackwood, which is Woody's name, um, and how it wasn't growing up because there wasn't enough light, but it had grown out sort of to one side in particular because that's where the light was. And I was thinking about how if permaculture is about mimicking ecological systems and forest systems, and if a community is a forest ecology, then if we are individual trees, then we have so much to learn just from being quiet and watching the trees who, like us, can't move very far at the moment and how does each individual tree creatively adapt in situ and just to look at this blackwood tree mm. and just see this beautiful metaphor of how we grow where there is light and how mm. we grow where there is nurture and sustenance and how all of the trees are connected underneath the ground with their mycelial mm. networks communicating sharing sugars how yeah. how we do that yeah, how we, how we and, learn from that and take those lessons on. And what you've identified there, Meg, is magic. And magic is the absolute nub of imagination. And children are predisposed to magic. That's why they live in the fairy realm um, until it's taken from them. Um, so for... The other thing too is that adults who have lost magic, um, and I count myself as one of those adults from time to time where I have no magic, I, and children take you back to that magic. And you can open to the magic of the world through children. And that is the door yeah. to imagination, and that is the door to story and the potential for otherworlding. I disagree, hmm. respectfully. Um, yeah, I don't think it's just children. I think it's when we're hanging out with our goats or if mm. we're in amongst the corn and you can hear the wind rustling through or planting a seed and when is it going to come up and you just see the tip of that, mm. that is Oh, yeah. The magic. I, I'm, I'm not saying without magic. Yeah, I know, I know but I don't believe it's just from children that you get it. No, that's true. It's being that's true, but they're, they're a really great conduit for... Are re-performing um, or re-developing your magical realm. And, of course, we've had a culture that, um, a, a scientific capital culture that mm. has basically, we, we started, I started this transition 12 years ago as an absolute Dawkins atheist. And it is mm. through working with animals and bees and soil microbes and humanure and gardens and the living of the world I'm now an animist. I, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't happened ideologically. Dawkins is ideological. That's where I started. Um, and also, how do, I, how, how do I divest from big, um, brutal uh, systems of capital? 
in food and energy resources and medicine resources. So, so that started in a very political place, a very sort of adult, um, uh, political, pragmatic and philosophical place. But the magic that has has come, and also I think being um, parents that it it's I, for me, my children have reacquainted me with magic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then I see, as 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 Meg is saying, yeah, in the corn, in in the eyes, in the intense s- s- eye contact with our billy goat mm-hmm. Woodison, when at evening we're putting them to bed and. I'm just in this grisly scratch with him under the chin and he's nuzzling into my into my ribs like this and scratching his and and then we're looking at each other and there is just something so there's such a transference of otherworldliness. And when you think of our ancestors um and their cosmology, their gods um, are interhuman. They're not just human. There's many of our ancestral gods are, you know, the god of light, of rainfall. It's the small gods, um, goat, goat man, goat woman. These sorts of um, interrelations are so obvious. They come to life again. And you, and you become extremely aware of just how dead scientific capital is. Scientific capital or, or science science this is a wonderful things of science. I'm not anti-science by, at, at, at all. But science, industry science or scientific capital has really degraded the, not just the world in terms of resource and world commons, but actually our imaginations as well. And our souls. I guess that's the same thing as imagination. Hmm. The yeah. mythical. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just thinking about electricity <laughs> and just how of course it it has given us so much just thinking about the wonder of just standing outside at night and just looking up at the stars and just that perspective and the the wonder and the magic and the the holiness of it and but then to come inside and Turn on a light. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I'm I'm really aware of, um, I've heard from a few people, um, you know, family and friends, um, not necessarily sort of in this space and not necessarily, you know, with that 12 12 years that that you guys have got of of kind of building the resilience that you've you've created so far. And um, I, I often think of all, just how many people there are in the world who, not not only haven't quite begun, but are just a long way from really sort of being in that headspace to think, like to think in the way that's necessary to make those steps. Um, I know somebody said to me recently, um, you know, this will all, this will all pass, and um, and we'll, we'll come, the world will return to normal, and we'll all be a bit wiser. And I thought, well, yes, that would be great, but I don't think she was saying it from this. She wasn't saying it from the space. I know she wasn't because she's she's thinking that we'll go back to normal <laughs> but we'll be a little bit wiser about how we do normal and and but but normal is is what we want and normal is what we've what we've had um and so and i'm and i you know as you've you guys have been saying you know we've got this this extraordinary opportunity to um rewrite normal um and to and to write a new future story um 
and I'm, it's just I'm really like I can see you guys creating it I've seen you guys creating it I've been in your home and I've seen how you live and I um and and everything about it feels very right to me um I'm just and and I know that and, and I know how much you influence the people in your community um and and so I know that what you're doing is working in the way that it needs to work in order to in, in order to in order to spread that message um but I also feel a sort of a sense of urgency about the need that we've got this little window of opportunity and we need so many more people to 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 come on board um and and sort of start making those changes and I wonder what your advice would be to people who haven't sort of haven't even come into this kind of way of thinking yet um and I'm thinking I'm asking this kind of from my own uh, for my own benefit because I know a lot of people who who aren't there and I and I'm wondering how do I you know we try through our films this is this is our work this is our life's mission um through our films to to try and spread these messages and this knowledge and to educate ourselves ourselves and therefore you know the people who watch our films um but I'm still always left with this question of how do we reach like we, we reach the lowest hanging fruit how do we get beyond the lowest hanging fruit um and I guess where I was going where, where I sort of started with this question is I'm really interested to know like what does the world look like for you guys like in your ideal um, for the for the future that we recreate, like what does it look like for you in in your ideal? Let's say in a I don't know in a couple of years time, say I don't know because we don't know how this is going to pan out. But but what kind of steps would we be taking as um um actually as a as a society, not just in our families and communities? Um, I'd like to. Start. Um, so I think just to start with uh, your point about um, those who haven't begun uh, to even conceive of uh, a potential transition or are not interested um, or can't see the relationship between the pandemic and the economic and cultural system that we're the dominant system that most of us are subject to. Um, there is no, unless, I mean, this is what I guess state communism attempted to do or, you know, fascism is to attempt to uh, align certain political ideologies and force them onto people. We're not saying that at all. We're just, we are saying though, a large number of people in the community that the the majority of people um, living in rich countries are still highly addicted to consumer culture um, and this is a moment for um, reflection um, but it has to come from each individual people I mean I, I think I used to smoke when I was in my teens and by my mid-twenties, I gave it up. And it was one of the first things that I set my mind to do, to give up this addiction. People have been telling me for years, what are you, crazy? But, you know, but I grew up in the arts and everyone in the arts smoked. And it was just, a, it was like an image for a young person. Um, and then I started 
to attend to myself in my mid-20s and say, right, actually, my health is my health. My body is my body. Like, what am I doing? So I know what it's like to give up an addiction. It's, smoking is a particularly full-on addiction. Um, this is a societal addiction, an economic addiction. And we have been living extremely comfortably because m many of us. Um, so there's, there's no advocacy f from us to impose ideology or will or onto anybody. People have to say, I'm ready to give up this addiction of consumer culture. They have to say it to themselves deeply, quietly. They need to cry. They need to break down. They need to be, become aware in themselves of what it costs them and what it's costing the earth and what it's costing future generations. And that is a, that, that is a, a moment of breakdown. That is a moment of, of, of great grief because you, you are going to be in loss of something that you thought was normal. So that is quite a process. And Meg and I have been through that and many of our friends have been through that. Um, giving up. And I think the other, th I guess the thing about this addiction is that it's not, you don't go cold turkey with it. Cold turkey is a, sort of a recipe for disaster. It's a step-by-step -step attending. And we're still giving up things. Um, one of the things we put on our um, list of things to give up this year was, we've given up coffee quite a while ago, um, a few years ago, is tea, black tea. It's organically grown, comes through our food co-op, which is a non-capital business. It's a, it's a community-supported, not-for-profit. But it's grown in Sri Lanka. Um, and that's, yeah, I've got the taste of it in my mouth. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that we have to attend to. And so what we've been doing uh, this year is drying and saving a whole raft of different teas from the garden and forage teas, stinging nettle tea, chamomile, calendula teas, a whole um, raft of different things that we're going to make tea from. But it, these things have to be step by step. If you just say, oh my God, my... <laughs> because we've, we've all been enculturated into this. We've been born into this system. Um, you can't just give it up overnight. It's not like cigarettes in that way. It's massive. It's, it's really big. But if you've ever given up something, you've, you can draw on those same principles of discipline, self-care, not beating yourself up if you um, if you take a you know step backwards or two. And also, <clears throat> I'd just like to add a few things to that. Um, that when we were in the beginning process of living this kind of way, we didn't know where we were going. We didn't know that we would end up here. We didn't have this moment, these skills, this way of living and relating with the world in mind. We just knew what we were turning our backs on. We knew what, how we didn't want to live. And the way of 
reclaiming time and reverence and love and energy and health was by change by giving up a whole lot of things and just changing our habits and behavior one item at a time. Mm. So yes, we still have to give up black tea, but the things that we did give up did make us look for alternatives. It's like, mm. okay, well, if we aren't going to be shopping at supermarkets anymore and if we aren't going to be flying, how do you go on a vacation with your family if you're not going to jump on an aeroplane? How, what are you going to eat if you're not going to buy something in, in a packet? Mm. Um, Giving up our car, I think, was that was a, a fundamental addiction. Yeah. That was, yeah, just enabled us to stay at home because of the huge financial costs of keeping, well, two cars when we got together. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and also we had a, so, f yeah, for me personally, um, there was lots of breaking down and lots of crying and lots of, but what do you mean the governments are choosing, you know, economics over our well-being and happiness? Um, lots of, I mean, I still have those thoughts, um, but they no longer uh, crack me open like they did. Um, but turning towards a permacultural way of life, looking at the principles and ethics and how we can absorb those into our life um, was a huge stepping away from and stepping towards a very different, very empowering, very exciting way of life. Um, so mm. I might say to your friend, um, so we had a visiting permaculturalist come to our town many, many years ago. Was it Roberto Perez? Mm -hmm. yeah, Roberto from Perez Cuba, yeah. from Cuba. And he said, there are three things. Catch your own water, grow your own food, say hello to your neighbour. And maybe you can't do all three of those at the same time, that maybe you need to work for a little bit more in your corporatized job to afford a rain tank and then you can catch your own water, but, you know, and then you can put other things in place. Um, but I just thought those three things are very, very simple, of course, very complicated when you look at all of those things and how do you say hello to your neighbours when you can't see them and especially now because we're all inside but how do you what does you know what how do we relate to the world and how we're going to feed ourselves and what are we going to drink and mm. 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 yeah it's interesting because this particular friend is someone who simply will never garden that's not her thing mm. she has absolutely zero desire to garden and and so growing her own food just it doesn't she's you know she's um older she's um sort of do, doesn't feel like learning anything anything new and i think there are a lot of people sort of in her generation where it's a sort of um that's all very nice for the young <laughs> but this is this is how i live it i'm not going to change it mm. um but also perfect, maybe but. she's yeah, what are her maybe, other skills? Yeah, exactly. What are her other yeah. skills? Maybe yeah. she can mend or maybe she has herbal medicine knowledge or maybe she can look after the kids while her neighbours garden yeah. and then do an exchange exactly. that way. I mean, yeah. everybody has something to offer, whether yeah. they're able-bodied or not. Exactly. We've yeah. all got gifts. It's not about we, but I think we forget that. Yeah. I, think, I think we... We um, do, I know, yeah. yeah. People think of permaculture as swinging an axe or fermenting skills or digging. Digging. It's like it's everything. Yeah. It's, it's a whole cult culture it could be writing songs like charlie mcgee even though he's a great veggie gardener as well um it might be just 
it, there there is every single like storytelling um like how you guys you you i would regard you guys as permaculture storytellers mm. um because you you use the principles it's not just about veggie gardening it's like obviously at least one in each household in every household at least one needs to be growing veggies um but if you can't then is your neighbor and what are you going to exchange for your neighbor what are your skills everybody has a skill everyone has usually many skills what is it that thing what is that service what is that skill what is that gift gift that you can bring um, in exchange, that's that's how you create rather a, rather than having a debt society, an indebted society, where we are um, not indebted in a negative sense or the pejorative sense of that word, but indebted like we're bonded, mm-hmm. we're interbonded with one another and with one another's. This is why I really can't stand that word self sufficiency because it it's just it's it's like head to the hills and you know it's, it's very similar to that sort of bolting yourself off from the world mm-hmm. um community sufficiency is is means everybody has a role everyone has a, a place to con- contribute and yeah it's and everybody uh, doesn't have to be able to do everything hmm. exactly, exactly. i like i like to or, think of it or, how yeah. how i how i um a forest is diverse. We can be diverse mm, in the skills that exactly. we have. We all we all have our niches, and that's where we can excel. Yeah. If we were all awesome veggie yeah. growers, there'd be too many yeah. carrots. There'd be there'd yeah. be too much of the one thing. We have to. I, I think it's like finding what you're passionate about, and mm. not making that the yeah. only thing you do because we don't want to be only doing this. That's kind of the industrial model again. But mm. I think we all have something to maybe excel at and offer to the whole mm. yeah even parasites parasites are very important you know, <laughs> you know as long as we don't have a whole society of parasites that's yeah. good but par- yeah. but you know there is room for the parasite and maybe the parasite is performing something that we're not seeing something about our learning about our awareness about enabling us to see what we fear and being open to that so you know, there's who's the who's the lichen, who's the grandmother tree, who's the who's the creek, who's the who's the messenger birds, all of these performers. Who are the microbes? Who are the earthworms? Who are the the mosses? Could I be a worm? You can, yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> what do you want to be? <laughs> what do you want to be? You guys. <laughs> Moss sounds pretty cool. Just. Yeah, that sounds nice and soft. Yeah, I'm definitely. Moss. Yeah, I think worms are pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, guys, for Mm. sharing your knowledge and, um, I think you the in the way you live, you offer a lot to people who are like us, not as far along that journey of transition that we've just been speaking about. You. I think offer kind of like a a window into what it could be, what a lifestyle, a more connected life, a more grounded uh, community-based life can look like. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really inspiring and so many others find it inspiring too. So, Yeah, and for all that we've maligned social media and the online world, um, 
I really hope that you guys will carry on contributing those videos and those that that education Definitely. because yeah. that is the the great um, positive of that mm-hmm. world of that you know the mm. um, well that's that's the world that we kind of rely on to <laughs> to spread yeah. out to spread the message yeah. we want to spread spread as well. But I really hope you'll con- carry on doing that because I think that is such a huge con- contribution, especially at a time like this, where yeah. Um, yeah. where we can't go mm. out and Thanks. give a workshop and. Mm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. So always good. Uh, Thanks, you guys. You guys. Big hugs. <laughs> huge hugs. Huge virtual isolation hugs. hugs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go wash my hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, much love. Guys. Thanks for tuning in to our first episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out our Patreon page where you can contribute as little as a dollar a month. We'll be releasing new episodes weekly, so tune in next week for our conversation with adventurer and activist Rob Greenfield. See you then.